Jeff has chosen and, and has been sung with the Via Della Rosa, the essence of the sermon this morning. And, uh, and I'm so appreciative of that. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. And I trust that you do have your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. You know, in the Gospels, we have the historical account of what took place. Uh, if you read what was read in Jesus entering into the triumphant entry, you have the, the eyewitnesses' account of what is taking place as, he, as Jesus comes into town. And you see that there's a lot of misunderstanding. People are like, who is this man? They're, even after all that time, we've been looking at it in John for months now, after all that time, the people are still saying, well, who is he? Why is he here? And they're still saying, well, he's that prophet, you know, that prophet Jesus from down in Nazareth, still not grasping, not grasping at all who he is. That's walking that Via Dolorosa, walking that, that path of suffering, that road of suffering, carrying a cross that he will soon hang upon. They just don't get it, at this, even at this point. And so in the Gospels, you have the account. You go on and read in Matthew and the other Gospels, you have the account of not just him entering the city, but what takes place in that that subsequent week, and then what takes place at the end of the week with his crucifixion on the cross, and then his burial, and his ultimate resurrection on that Sunday. I mean, you have the, the glory of all those things happening in historical accounts. But it's in the epistles, specifically the epistles of Paul and, and Peter and John, but, but Paul, whom I love to hear him talk about the cross, you have the interpretation of all those events. You have, you have Paul saying, now, you, you know he walked that road. You know he carried that cross. You know he hung on that cross. But here's what it means. Because there's depth of meaning in the acts that took place in the Gospels. I remember reading from someone saying not long ago, one of our founding fathers who was not a believer, although some try to make him a believer, he said, you know, I am a disciple of the teachings of Jesus. I like the red letters. Only problem is they reject many of the red letters. But understand, it's not just the red letters that are the Word of God. Those words were not written down by Jesus. Those are the words that John and Matthew and Mark and Luke remember him having said, and they, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, are writing them down and quoting him but the whole of Scripture is just as inspired as the red letters. I, that's why I hate red-letter Bibles. I have one here in front of me, but I don't like it. And when I'm reading it, I try to see black and white, not red, okay? Because there's, it's not just those red letters that are the inspired Word of God. Indeed, the entirety of the Scripture is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired, holy Word. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Now let me tell you, about that cross. Let me tell you what the end of that week meant. When he walked that road, he walked that path, and he hung on that cross, and he died there. Hear what Paul says. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 
Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks who are of the called, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, of which there is none, by the way, the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of our Lord. Do you find it a little interesting that the Apostle Paul in verse 18 starts out by saying, For the word of the cross is foolishness. He could have easily said, For the death of Christ is foolishness. For the death of Jesus is foolishness. The, the world thought there would be a Messiah who would come in on that triumphal day and go not to, a, not to a hiding place and not to a place with his disciples where he broke bread and, and celebrated the Passover in an upper room with them, but they thought he would come in in a triumphal entry and would go straight to the throne of David, straight to the temple, and would establish himself as the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, and would say, I have now arrived. They didn't expect him to see him on a donkey, but maybe on a white stallion. They didn't expect to see him coming in humility, but rather coming in boldness and, and pride and, and maybe even some arrogance in his life, saying, I've come to clean house. I've come to, to run everybody out that does not acknowledge that God is creator. God is sovereign. God is king. But he didn't do that. He came and he went to a cross. He came and he died on the cross. He came as a sacrifice. He came to be a substitute. He came to show the world that that, that, which, that those who are perishing, those who don't know God, those who are not, as he puts it here, of the called, this whole act is foolishness. But yet the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Let me face it. In Jesus' own day, man would have done it differently. Man would have said, no, let's put on a big show. Let's have a big crusade. Let's do all these mighty things. Let's show these people who he is. Jesus said, no, I come in on a donkey, humble, quiet, to carry out the purpose for which I've come. Man would have certainly not said in that day, let's send him to the cross. Let's Let's have this one who we hope to be the king, hope to be the ruler, hope to be the one who, who will lead us out of this slavery and this bondage of, of Rome. Let's certainly don't kill him. Why, he's no good to us if he's dead. The wisdom of man is foolishness. And set alongside the wisdom of God. 
Paul in this passage and scriptures and other places show us what I would call the heart of the cross. The heart of the cross, the the innermost meaning of the cross, the, the, the ultimate hope of the cross that you and I have. And there's several things that we learn from it. First of all, I want you to understand the necessity of the cross. There there are people in our day today who say, well, why did God have to send his son? Why did God have to kill his son? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Couldn't God, in all of his omnipotent wisdom, in all of his his power, in all of his glory, couldn't he have just said, look, all is forgiven. Don't worry about it. We've talked about that in John's gospel. He couldn't do that. Not and remain just, not and remain holy. He could not say sin is of no longer any consequence. Sin is of no longer any big deal. I just, I just pass over it. I just look at it and say, don't worry about it and forgive it. No, there was the necessity of the cross. Peter dealt with that at Pentecost. When at Pentecost he said this, he said, this man, talking about Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by hands of godless men and put him to death. But, but he's saying there, it's, it's God's purpose, it's God's plan. The necessity of the cross was to fulfill God's perfect plan. Not his plan B, not his plan C, not his idea that maybe he could overcome something that didn't work to begin with. No, it was to carry out and perfect the plan of God, to fulfill it in all of its totality. And so, Peter says, it's by God's predetermined plan, it's by God's foreknowledge, knowing that it was coming, had to come in order to fulfill his plan that the cross took place. There was the necessity of the cross. Not just to fulfill the plan of God, but also to to pay for sin. There had to be a sacrifice. As we talked earlier, as I said in the the call to worship, uh, you know, the Palm Sunday that we celebrate was the day in which the the lamb was chosen for the Passover. The Passover lamb was chosen to celebrate that. And they they chose the, the most perfect lamb they could find, but it could not pay for sin. It could symbolize the payment that was yet to come. It could show that there will be blood shed that will bring ultimate, complete forgiveness of sin for all time, for all people who believe. But a lamb can't, can't do that. It was to fulfill God's plan. It was to pay for sin. And it was to save you who are saved. Or as, as Paul says, who are being saved. It's, it's, this, it's this constant work in our life. It's, it's not completed and perfected totally until we stand face to face. But it's to fulfill God's plan. It's to pay for sin. And it's to save for himself a people for his own glory. That's you. And that's me. So God couldn't just say, mm, I'll bypass the cross. I'll bypass the sacrifice and we'll just keep on having these little lamb sacrifices and everything will be fine, but there will really be no atonement fully for sin. There was the necessity of the cross. Paul talks about here the offense of the cross. Not just the necessity, but the offense. He said, you know, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Why the Jews want a sign and the, the Greeks search for wisdom and, and we just preach Christ crucified. And in that, because there's no great sign to them that they see, they don't see crucifixion as a sign. 
it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks who want wisdom all the time. There's an offense in the cross. Some people in our day would say, let's try to take away the offense of the cross. You can go into places that call themselves churches all across this nation and you will not see a cross. You can go into churches and they will not talk about a cross. They will not talk about the blood of Christ. They will not talk about things that are absolutely necessary to understand God's plan, God's purpose, God's payment, and and His ability to save you through that. You just won't see that. They're offended by the cross. There's an offense of the cross. The writer of Hebrews, in my idea, Luke, in my estimation, Luke said this. He said in Hebrews 12, too, he said, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. Listen to this. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. In the law, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 talked about that it is a curse for someone to, stand, to hang on a tree, to be hung on a tree, to be hung on a cross. And, and Jesus hung there in shame. But he endured it for the joy of what he knew would be accomplished by it. The shame was not overcoming in his life. The the shame was not something that kept him from the cross. It was the joy of what that shame of hanging there would bring about that brought him to the cross, and he endured it for the joy that was set before him. To the Romans, the cross was the most terrifying form of execution that they could imagine. Only the worst of the worst were, 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 were executed on the cross. It was a horrible death, and we, we talk about the death. You know, we, several years ago, in the early 2000s, uh, Mel Gibson did his movie, The Passion of the Christ, and no doubt some of you, many of you, probably all of you saw it at one time or another, and, and you saw the horrendous nature of that cross, the scourgings and the crown of thorns and the beating and, and, and all that went on, and then the hanging on the cross and the bleeding and the, the dying there through literal suffocation. And we look at that and we say, oh, what a horrible way to die. But I contend to you this morning that those horrible physical things were not the horrors of the cross for Christ. It was that he was bearing, as we sang about this morning, he was bearing the wrath of God. He was taking our sins. The, Jew, uh, the Romans saw it as a horrendous physical way of execution, but in Jesus' eyes, the horrors of the cross was bearing your sin and my sin and hanging there, experiencing the wrath of God at that point upon his being. taking your sin. But to the Jews, it was a curse. They knew Deuteronomy 21. It was a a curse. To the moral person who thinks they're a good person, it was absolutely an affront. Even today, the moral people say, I don't want Jesus dying for me. I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus to die for me. I I do my best. I try to obey the laws. I'll do, I do everything I can. I'm a moral I don't need Jesus dying on the cross for me. It's an affront to them. The cross is an offense, has always been an offense, and my friend always will be an offense. If we stand on the truth of the gospel, people will be offended. If we stand on the truth of the gospel, 
folks, i got to tell you, will never be liked. And it'll go beyond anything we can imagine today. Let me tell you, you know, I was, you probably saw in the news this past week about the student at Florida Atlantic University, FAU, that was, that was uh, suspended because in a cultural communication class, whatever that is, what happened to reading, writing, and arithmetic? But anyway, in a cultural communication class, the assignment was to write the name Jesus on a piece of paper, lay it on the floor, and stomp on it. The student refused to do it. So I can't do that. It's my Lord. I, I can't stomp on his name. He was suspended. Now, since the school has apologized and said they'll never do that exercise again, but my gosh, why'd they ever do it to begin with? It's because there's an offense in the cross that people want to play down Christ and, and be as offensive toward Christ as they can because they just cannot stand the fact that their morality, their own good works, their own idea themselves, is not good enough. And man, is in our pride, we, we are so good at convincing ourselves that we really are good people, even in, in the face of all contrary evidence. There's the offense, the necessity of the cross. There's the offense of the cross. But in this verse, you see the power of the cross. In these verses out of 1 Corinthians, you see the power of the cross. For the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. There was no weakness in Christ on that cross. He was not hanging there in utter defeat. He was hanging there knowing that in just a very few short hours he was going to say, into my spirit I commit, your, I, I commit my spirit into your hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he was going to cry out with a loud voice, it is finished. And that was not going to be a, a, a cry of defeat or a cry of loss. It was a cry of power. He was on to say, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ. That's, that's the essence of our message. That's the heart of the gospel. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, Jews or Greeks, doesn't matter. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified. We rest in that reality. We glory in that truth that the cross is the power of God. Fourthly, we see the victory of the cross. We see the victory of the cross, especially in verses like Colossians, out of Paul's letter to Colossians 2.15, when, when Paul said, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, you know, you got all these rulers and authorities, physically, Roman and, and Jewish, who are standing around the cross, holding their armaments of war, holding their weapons, girded in their armor that we're talking about on Sunday night with, the, with Ephesians chapter 6 right now. you got all of these armors, and you got him hanging on a cross, and yet Paul says when that was taking place, they were being disarmed. And not just them, but rulers and authorities in the heavenlies were being disarmed. They looked and thought, we hold our arms and you hold nothing. And he hung there knowing that their armament was weakness next to him and was useless. The victory of the cross 
early in that same chapter in Colossians 2, Paul says, listen, there was a debt owed and there was a debt canceled on the cross. He said, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your own flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has shaken, he, excuse me, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. To the cross. Paul said, don't you understand this? You owed a debt, and your debt was because of your sin, and there were decrees of God against not just your debt, but against you. God said, you owe that debt, and that debt has not been paid for, so you've got to pay for that debt, and, and you're going to pay for it for all of eternity if that's how you choose to pay for it, it yourself. But he said, for those, for those whom are the called, for those who trust in Christ, and, and he says, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever whoever believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved, confessing Christ with their mouth. There's a dead ode, and God's sin was against it. Uh, God's wrath was against it. But on that cross, on that cross, Jesus nailed your debt to it. As he was being nailed there. And it was paid for to all who look and believe. Jeff read that passage, a part of that passage. You know, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in the serpent in the wilderness, all who looked to it were healed because of the snake bites and the, 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 the plague that came among them because of their disobedience. Those who look to Christ and believe will not just be healed, they will be made alive. In Christ Jesus. There's the victory of the cross. Canceling your certificate of debt. Nailing it to the cross. Paul even says that there's a boast of the cross. Matter of fact, in Galatians 6 verse 14, he said that's really the only thing worthy to boast in. He, he said, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul said, I don't want to be a braggart. I used to boast about, he told the Philippians, I used to boast about what a good man I was. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was the tribe of Benjamin. As to the law, I, I could not be found guilty. I was found blameless by all who looked at me, all humanly who looked at me used to brag a lot about who I was and who I am. But I've come to realize that all of that was trash. All of that was garbage. Literally, all of that was dung, according to Paul's letter to the Philippians. It was refuse. It was filthy. And I'm not going to brag about what I can do, have done, or will do. If I brag... If I boast, it's going to be in the cross of Jesus Christ, and that alone. Nothing else. Because through the cross, 
I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. I'm no longer a citizen here. I'm now a citizen of heaven. I'm a dual citizen, if you will. In the heavenly places, my citizenship is with Christ because I've died to this world. This world has died to me and live unto Christ. Paul says, I want you to see the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. The power of God is greater than the power of the world. We preach Christ crucified. We don't cre- preach... Cre- Time out. We don't preach Christ. It's just a great teacher. We don't preach Christ as a great miracle worker, although he was both of those. But his teaching and his miracles have no merit and no value at all if it's not for the cross. So we preach Christ crucified, which leads to understanding not just the power of the cross, not just the necessity of the cross, not just the victory of the cross, not just the boast of the cross, but the way of the cross. The way of the cross. Now, it is true that only Christ could bear the cross. No, no doubt. It is true that only Christ could bear the sin. But he himself said in, in Luke, he said he was saying to them all, this is what he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Taking up your cross daily doesn't mean that you're, you're somehow paying for your sins. It means that you're acknowledging that your sins have been paid for. It's acknowledging that the grace that you have received from God through Jesus Christ was a costly grace. It wasn't a cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor, coined that phrase, cheap grace, and talking about a lot of the preaching in his day, even during the Nazi regime in Germany when he lived. He called it cheap grace, and this is how he defined it. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's a great definition of what we come to bow before on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. We don't come because of some cheap grace. We don't come because of some cheap grace where Jesus says, well, just just go on, you're okay, I've died, that's fine. We come because with forgiveness comes repentance. They're the same side, two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable. There is, there is forgiveness and there is repentance. And there is baptism. But that baptism carries with it the understanding of church discipline. They were not baptized just so we say, okay, we went through the water, everything's fine, and now we'll just do our own thing. We're, we're baptized into a body of believers so that we might, we might hold one another 
close to the cross. There is no communion without confession. We call this table communion, the Lord's Supper, communion, that we'll come to in a moment. I want you to understand that this called communion is merely just symbolizing a communion that exists between Christ and His church. It's a nearness, it's a closeness, and it's kept rich through confession, personal confession and corporate confession. When you bow your heads in a few moments and pray before we pass these elements, I will encourage you to do this. I will encourage you to pray with David out of Psalm 139. Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And if there be any hurtful way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. That's David's way of saying, if there's anything there that is sin, cleanse me of it. Cleanse me of it. And I will encourage you to pray that as you hold that bread and hold that cup in your hand before we ever take of the elements together. And I will encourage you to ask God to shine His Word into your life and show you sin that needs to be confessed. Not because if you're in Christ, it's not forgiven. It is. But because if sin is being harbored, it's it's hindering the communion, the fellowship. The way of the cross is true discipleship. The way of the cross is being crucified to the world and the world being crucified to you. The way of the cross is taking up your cross daily and following Him. And today we see too much of a lack of true discipleship in all of our churches. In all of our churches. I read the first sentence of one book. The first sentence of a book I, I bought this week on worship. I only got the first sentence read. I think it's going to be a good book, though, by the first sentence. He said, you know, I don't think ever when Jesus was scolding the people for their hypocrisy, did they ever come by him after that sermon and say, preacher, nice sermon. Good word. They got angry at him. But they don't get angry. They don't get angry at the preacher if he points out hypocrisy or if he calls us to a deeper walk of the cross. True discipleship is what's necessary. It means saying no to self and saying yes to Christ. It means saying no to to my way and yes to his way. In premarital counseling, I tell couples all the time when they we get to a certain point, I say, you know, and I'll say this in the service, as a matter of fact, that just every wedding I do, I say, you know, what you have to come to realize is the commitment you're making today is you're abandoning my way for our way. And above all else, the Lord's way, Christ's way. Well, that's what salvation is. That's what discipleship is. It may not be with a, a, a mate for life physically on this earth, but it's, a, it's an abandoning my way, what I want. I want my comfort. I want my desires. I want what I can get. It's abandoning that, saying, Lord, I want your way. I want your will in my life. And if that's struggling, I will accept it, and I will be obedient, and I will follow, and I will stay faithful because you are my Savior, you are my Lord, and all these things don't really matter in the, whole, in, in the final analysis. 
What matters is my walk with you. As we come to this table today, that's what I want you examining. That's what I want you asking. That's what I want you searching for. Lord, what is it? What is it that's interfering with my communion with you? What is it that's interfering with my closeness to you? Maybe it's an idol in your life. Maybe it's something that you just say, I, I'm not going to let go of. I'm going to demand that I be able to do this. That's an idol. And Maybe God is saying to you today, you need to give that up for the glory of God. You need to cast that, even as we sang about earlier, you need to cast that upon Him. Bring it to Him. Glory in Him. The heart of the cross what we celebrate when we come to this table. His body hanging there, His blood shed, that we might have life, might have it everlasting, might have it abundantly, and might have it for His glory. Would you bow with me in prayer? And as you're praying, the deacons who are going to serve the meal come and assemble, but I want your focus on you and your Lord right now. Rarely do I say focus on you, but I want that focus to be on you and Him. Lord, search me and know me. Try my anxious thoughts and see if there be any sin, any harbored sin within me. And lead me to repentance. Lead me to confession. Homo legao, saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Father, we commit this time to you as we come to this table. Commit this time to think about your sacrifice. Focus our attention. Bring us to confession. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as always, if you're here and a believer this morning, I invite you to the table. Whether you're a member of grace or not, this is the Lord's Supper, not our supper. And I invite you to share in it with us. I ask parents to sort of police their children. If they're not baptized believers, have not trusted Christ, I ask you to help them just to pass it by for a moment, for this time, until, until God has done that work in their life. But if you know the Lord, you're invited to share in this with us. Scripture says that after that triumphal entry and as they gathered to celebrate the Passover together, 
There was bread and there was wine and he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. He said, eat it in remembrance of me. And he said, this wine is my, is my blood. It's, it's, it's poured out for you. It's the blood of the new covenant. The covenant that brings you into relationship with God through Christ. Take it and drink it. Do this in remembrance of me. He blessed it. And he passed it among them. Father, we ask your blessings on the bread and on the wine, the fruit of the vine. We ask you, Father, to work in our hearts confession. Grant us repentance. Draw us close to you close to the cross. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be God, the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and set him down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. 
Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Peter, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. no magic in the elements. It's symbolic of what has taken place in your life. It's what only believers are supposed to take of it. Paul said to the Corinthians, many are asleep, that's dead, and many are ill because they take of it lightly. So we come as believers saying, his body is what I've trusted in. His hanging on the cross is death. I've trusted in his blood is what has cleansed me. Jesus said, this bread is my body. Take and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. And then he said, my 
cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that cleanses sin and sets you free and makes you alive in Christ. Take and drink it and do this in remembrance of me. This is a, it's a great week to reflect on who he is, what he has done, and what has been our response to him. Scripture says that after they observed that with him on that last supper in the upper room, they sang a hymn and they went out. We're going to have a hymn, a hymn of commitment, of invitation. And I invite you. If you're here this morning and have never trusted Christ, you've, you've heard the gospel this morning, I invite you to Christ, not to a church, not to a preacher, but to Christ. I invite you to come to Him. You can do that right where you stand, right where you sit. You make it public later, or maybe today, but, but you trust Him and Him alone. Don't trust in a decision. Don't trust in a church. Trust in Christ alone. Maybe you're here and God's leading you to be a part of this church family. Whatever it is God's doing in your life, you be obedient to Him. As we stand together, as we sing this hymn together, you come.